chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maziah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans, who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against the city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning. And deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, well, who shall come down against us or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings. Says the Lord, I will kindle a fire in its forest and it shall devour all things around it. This is the ninth sermon in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's series of repent or die. It sounds pretty familiar to the other sermons, doesn't it? In this sermon, Jeremiah will address four godless kings of Judah. The first message will be to King Zedekiah. 
And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the history of Israel and the nation, how David was king and he had a son named Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided with a kingdom to the north called Israel and a kingdom to the south called Judah. There were a series of kings, all almost all of the bad kings were in the north and there were few good kings in the south. The first message to Zedekiah, who ruled, by the way, from about 609 B.C. to about 586 B.C., the message is basically can be summed up in a single sentence. Here's the message to you, Zedekiah. You will not escape judgment. End of the message. The second message will be to King Shalom, or Jehoiaz. Now, he is only a king for about three months, and we're going to find this in chapter 22. He is the king from about 609 B.C., um, but he will be deported to Egypt, and we'll find that in chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. Basically, the message to him is, you're condemned to die in exile in utter hopelessness. The third message is to King Jehoiakim in chapter 22, verses 13 through 23, who was a puppet king. After the battle of Carchemish, Pharaoh Necho basically established him as a puppet king to do the will of the administration of the Egyptians. And basically, he will be condemned due to his terrible, unrepentant evil, due to his excessive covetousness or greed. He was unjust and dishonest and unrighteousness. Think of every wicked thing that you can think of and just you can put it under his name. The fourth message will be to King Jehoiachin, or he's also known in the Bible as Coniah or Conian. The message is, you're rejected by God, condemned, even if he were given a signet ring on God's finger, God would remove him. It's an idiomatic expression of saying, even if it looked like he belonged there, he really doesn't belong there. And he will be handed over to the king of Babylon in chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. So... In the past of Judah, after the time of David and Solomon, there were great days, if you will, for Judah. The days of David the king, the days of Hezekiah the king, the days of Josiah the king. But those good days had now turned into a series of bad days. And the nation had experienced times of spiritual revival in the past, and they had experienced times of honoring God in the past. But the times of honoring God, knowing God, and obeying God were over with. And so this was a difficult time. It was a time of disgrace and decline. And so King Zedekiah is basically the last king, if you will. He's begging Jeremiah to plead with God to intercede on behalf of the nation. And the armies of Nebuchadnezzar 
have made their way from Babylon into Israel, into the province of Judah, and pretty much are on their way and surrounding the the camps. And the king's request is basically refused. Jeremiah warns the king that God isn't going to intervene, that God isn't going to deliver the nation with a miracle. In the past, all kinds of miracles had taken place. During the time of Hezekiah and during the time of Josiah and during the time of David, there was miracle after miracle after miracle. And so Zedekiah is basically asking, isn't there one more miracle left for us? And so, God will fight against Judah. Judah's weapons will prove useless in verses 3 through 7. A plague will devastate the city, killing the people and the animals in verses 6 and 7. He warns the king, and then Jeremiah warns the people in verses 8 through 10. And there we're going to see that great passage, choose between life and death. To stay in Jerusalem while it's under siege means you're going to die. To surrender to Nebuchadnezzar means that you're going to live. And so we go to verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest. So here's the deal. Zedekiah is king. The armies have come, and so the, sin, the king sends a delegation to request prayers from Jeremiah. By the way, this isn't the pasture that's mentioned in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, who basically arrested Jeremiah and put him in stocks and beat him. It's a different pasture. Because you can imagine to send the same guy who arrested you, beat you up, and imprisoned you and says, hey, I have a favor that I want to ask you. Probably not high on the favor list. So, here's the deal. After years of mocking Jeremiah, after years of persecution and harsh treatment, after years of hearing the sad sermon that An army is going to come from the north and wipe us out. All of a sudden, the army has come from the north, and it looks pretty bad. So there seems to be some credibility to what Jeremiah has been saying all along. And so after years of this treatment, they come to him and they say, it looks like you've heard from God. So since you're the kind of guy who talks with God and you hear from God, uh, We'd like you to ask God to deliver us from this horrible mess we find ourselves in. By the way, Melchiah means the Lord is king. And it may refer to the prince, perhaps the prince who was in charge of the dungeon where Jeremiah spent a great deal of time. And the name Zephaniah, by the way, if you've ever wondered what that name means, it means the Lord has hidden or the Lord has stashed away. Or the Lord has put aside a treasure. And he's a temple official. And again, this is, this is not the Zephaniah who is the author of the book of Zephaniah. We'll, we'll see him again, by the way, in chapter 29, verses 24 through 32, where he, out of everybody, appears to be a pretty level-headed guy. He will attempt to do his best 
in a very difficult and a confusing circumstance. And after the fall of Jerusalem, he's going to basically be put to death in Riblah. And you can find that in Jeremiah chapter 52, uh, verses 24 and 27 and Second Kings chapter 25, verses 18 through 21. Maziah means the work of the Lord and an ancestor of Baruch had his name. But Jeremiah describes events that are all taking place about 588 B.C. Here's the picture. They're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. The armies of Babylon are camped all around the walls of Jerusalem And the armies are about to embark on a siege on the city. And the siege will not just last one month or ten months or twenty months. The siege will last thirty months. King Zedekiah was weak and vulnerable. You have to understand part of the historical circumstances, the armies of the north, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the armies of the south and Egypt, the pathway between these two places is Judah. And so Judah was constantly being fought for. And so King Zedekiah, rather than fall into the hands of the king of the north, decided that he would make a deal with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, to ask for help and assistance. And so here's the problem. The king did exactly the opposite of what he was supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to look to the armies of the world and the nations of this world and the peoples of this world. He was supposed to look to God. God was supposed to be his refuge. God was supposed to be his strong tower. It was his job to responsibly lead the people to worship God and to trust God. But he wouldn't do that. And so a battle took place between the king of Babylon and the king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt lost. And so by default, Babylon becomes the sovereign owner, if you will, of Jerusalem. And so since Babylon now owns Jerusalem, it was Jerusalem's responsibility to pay tribute to the king of Babylon. King Zedekiah says, I am not going to pay tribute. And Nebuchadnezzar said, then I'm going to wipe you out. And now we continue the story. Verse (laughs) 2. Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. When he sends the message, please inquire of the Lord. Inquire is a very diplomatic word. Moffat translates this, pray consult. It can also mean pray for. The king is basically asking Jeremiah, Not just simply for predictions about what's going to happen. We might read into this, please inquire of the Lord for us. The idea is, 
Jeremiah, since you're a man of God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pray your guts out. I need you to pray your heart out. I need you to pray to the Lord. And I need you to tell the Lord, don't wipe us out. Send the armies away. Now, month after month and year after year, Jeremiah has begged them to repent and turn from their sin. And month after month and year after year, They've said, no, we're not going to honor God. We're not going to obey God. We're not going to honor God. We're not going to obey God. And now the troubling consequences of a life of rebellion and disobedience are finally catching up. The king is asking for intercession. And by the way, in chapter 21, right here, this is the first mention that we have of the name Nebuchadnezzar. We are going to know more about him. And obviously he is going to figure greatly in the book of Daniel. Nebo means defend the boundary. He was the son of Nabopolazar, who led his father's troops to victory in the battle of Carchemish. And so Nabopolazar is in Babylon, ruling over the empire. Nebuchadnezzar is the number one son who goes to Carchemish, defeats the Egyptians, and consolidates this particular territory for the Babylonian empire. It was that battle, again, that assured the sovereign control over the area that we would call Judea and Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder. He was a great administrator. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar will take over his father's throne. He will rule for 43 years, and he is that person who's pictured as the head of gold in the image that Daniel has of human empires. So, what prompts the prayer request? Nebuchadnezzar has invaded Judah. He's standing at the doorstep of Jerusalem. The king hopes God has one more miracle left for the nation. Do you ever wonder about that? If God has one more miracle just for you? You know, here's part of the challenge that we each and every one of us have. It doesn't make sense to live a life of rebellion and disobedience and then go, Lord, I've lived a life of rebellion and disobedience, but I don't want any, I don't want to have to accept any of the consequences. I don't want to have to embrace any of the consequences of a life lived apart from you. But that's what's exactly happening here. And the answer, of course, is total defeat. Look at verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, verse 4, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons, Ooh, sounds good so far, of war, Ooh, that's good, that are in your hands, Ooh, that's bad! (laughs) It reminds me of The oracle of Delphi, where a king approached the oracle and he asked the question about who would win a particular battle. And the answer was given in such an ambiguous way that it could have gone either way. But this is unambiguous. 
The Lord God of Israel says, look, I'm going to turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. Chaldea, by the way, in this particular instance, is a province of the area that belonged to Babylon who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. In other words, here's what he's saying. They're going to breach the walls, and they're going to come inside. He's predicting total defeat. And then in verse 5, he says, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. And by the way, the sentence in the Hebrew language places the emphasis on I myself. In other words, what he's doing is he's making it abundantly clear. If you're wondering what's happening and why this is happening, I'm making it happen. I, the sovereign God who made a promise to you, am now going to keep my promise because over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord had said over and over again, I myself will fight with you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm. When the enemies are coming against you, it's my hand and it's my outstretched arm that will protect you and deliver you. But it's one thing to have God be your protector. And it's another thing for God to be your adversary. And there's few things more frightening than asking and answering the question, where is the Lord in the situation that I find myself in? And the Lord's answer comes in the form of a divine pronouncement. Not only will God not intervene, not only will God not deliver, God is going to use the armies of Babylon as his agent of divine justice, of divine retribution, and of judgment. And see, this is something that causes Christians a great deal of concern. It's one thing for God to spank you, but it's another thing, the instrument that he uses to decide to discipline you. And so the prophet uses strong language. Look again in verse 5. Read it for yourself. Look at those three words. Anger. Fury. Great wrath. Just what's, your first, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear those three words? <laughs> Anger, fury, great wrath. Does that sound that he's ambivalent? Equivocating. There's some ounce of compassion or mercy that's left. No. In the past, like I said, God's outstretched hand and strong arm fought Against Judah's enemies. In the book of Psalms it says. In Psalm 18.25. To the faithful. You show yourself faithful. But to the crooked. You show yourself shrewd. The prophet uses strong language. And see part of the challenge that we have. Each and every time. Is to remind us of. 
what is really going on. The people had made a covenant with God and they broke the covenant. God warned the people repeatedly that their disobedience would meet with anger and judgment in the land. And the people consistently refused to listen. The leaders and the people preferred dead idols to the living God. The leaders and the people preferred pleasure to personal holiness. They preferred sexual satisfaction to sanctification. The people and the leaders preferred power politics and godless neighbors to simple faith and real relationship with the Lord. What do you prefer? In the grand scheme of things, when you begin to do a laundry list of what you want your life to look like, what do you want it to look like? And so I would encourage you just to remind you, of, of the covenant that you made with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when you discovered that your sins could be forgiven, that they could be washed and cleansed, and that you could experience His grace and His mercy and His <laughs> forgiveness and redemption? And you thought, hell? Heaven. I'm, gonna, I'm going with heaven. Guilt? Forgiveness. I'm going with forgiveness, dirtiness or cleansing. I'm going with cleansing. In Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 6, he says, I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. So the Lord gives a message to Jeremiah to give to the king. You're going to experience plague. You're going to experience plus pestilence. You're going, many of you are going to die in a famine. For the ones that don't die of pestilence and for the ones that don't die from hunger and the ones that don't die from the sword, they're going to be carried away into Babylon. And in verse 7, look what it says. And afterwards, says the Lord. Well, verse 6, I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Verse 7, and afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, nor will he have Pity. Now, do you want to know what really happened? Josephus tells the story of the siege. The siege began January 15th, 588 B.C. It continued until July 18th, 586 B.C. A period of just over 30 months. The Babylonian army fought and finally overcame the city. They captured Zedekiah. They captured his sons. They captured the nobles. His sons were killed right before his eyes. And after they were all killed, the commander took a red hot knife 
and blinded Zedekiah. He literally burned the eyeballs out of the socket of his head. He was taken in chains to Babylon where he died. And we'll find out more about that in Jeremiah chapter 39 verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 52 verses 8 through 11. And also 2 Kings chapter 25. It's sometimes difficult for us to follow the transitions of thinking that's taking place in the book of Jeremiah. But now, between verse 7 and verse 8, there's a dramatic change in the message. Because now, Jeremiah is no longer addressing the king and the nobles. But now he is going to address the people. In other words, there's no hope for Zedekiah. But there's a glimmer of hope for the other people. Look at verse 8. Now, new thought, new transition. You shall say to this people, these are the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Jeremiah advises the people. Everyone, surrender and survive. Treason? Can you imagine if the people said the same thing in any war that you've ever been in? Can you imagine if, ever, if, if the enemy is storming the gate and you have this person saying, excuse me, excuse me, time out, everybody, before this war continues, let me tell you something. Here's the right thing to do. Surrender and survive. And by the way, this is going to cost Jeremiah dearly because that's exactly how they're going to see it. Um. Jeremiah, by the way, has in mind Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you're unfamiliar with Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, it's the passage where he talks about life. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, when he speaks about choosing between life and death, in that particular passage, life meant blessing. Choose blessing. But here, choosing life means survival. And if you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'm just going to look very briefly at verses 15 through 20. And I just want to read it to you in a different translation. It says, see, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances so that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you're entering to possess And here's the emphasis and the contrast. But if your heart turns away, I'm going to reread it. But if your heart turns away, I'm going to read it a third time. But if your heart turns away and you don't listen and you're led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land that you're entering to possess across the Jordan. And listen to what it says. 
I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Now, again, when God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today, you understand what he's saying? So long as there's a sky above, and so long as there's dirt beneath your feet, every time you walk, you should remember that I have called upon the very ground that you're walking on to help you remember the covenant that we've made. I'm calling upon the sky itself to testify of the agreement that we have entered into. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, love the Lord your God, obey him, remain faithful to him, for he is your life and he will prolong your life in the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So that's the deal. Life. Death. Israel failed to keep the covenant. And the curse came upon them. And that's what you're seeing. See, there's a huge gap of time between Deuteronomy and Jeremiah. When Deuteronomy was written, remember, Moses is bringing them out of Egypt and walking them through the wilderness. And he's giving them the law. And the time period is a fairly significant amount of time. As a matter of fact, if you march forward, it's going to be about 600 years when Solomon and David are king. And it's about another 400 years and 500 years, four to 500 years between this. So a thousand years have gone by between the promise and the consequences. And you might think, well, that happened years ago. That happened a lifetime ago. Certainly God doesn't care what happened a lifetime ago. What happened a lifetime ago could never catch up to me now. But here's part of the point that, that the passage is making. God enters into an agreement. And here's the good news. The good news, if you've entered into an agreement with God in the Lord Jesus Christ... There's some things about the new covenant that are way better than the old covenant. You see, the old covenant was based on a promise and it was based in part on the law. But the law never provided salvation and redemption to anyone. But guess what Jesus has done? Jesus has given you everything that you need in order to ensure that you can have life and love and power and friendship and relationship with God. You know what? In the New Testament, it says your heart can fail, but Jesus can't fail. He can't deny himself. And in verse nine, it says he who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be as a prize to him. This is Jeremiah's way of saying 
during the course of the siege, almost everyone is going to lose everything. But the truth, if you leave everything now, you'll get to keep your life. What about my job? And what about my business? And what about this? And what about that? You know, it reminds me of what happens when Jesus sets before us life and death. Remember, Jesus himself says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And for those people who say, well, you know what? If I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to change my business. I'm going to have to change my relationships. I'm going to have to change my circumstances. I know. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful? Because what does it, what value is there if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Here's the message. Hope for Zedekiah and his sons? No. Hope for the people? Yeah. If they'll listen to to Jeremiah. But again, they... They see his words as an act of treason. And so Jeremiah returns to the language of the covenant. God has set before you two ways. A choice. A real choice. Between life or death. And by the way, this is the way it's always in the Bible. With God, you choose one way or the other. Is it really possible to be neutral with God? Not really. What if the person says, look, I don't want to I don't want to make a decision about Jesus. I don't want to have to determine whether I love him or trust him or believe him. But over and over again, people are called on to make a choice. As a matter of fact, in Psalm one, verse one, we get that great passage that says, blessed. Oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. But they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We live in a world where it doesn't seem that way. It seems like the wicked prosper and it seems like those who satisfy themselves and indulge themselves have the upper hand. But it's not true. You can't remain neutral. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 29 and chapter 12, verse 22 and All the way through verse 30, Jesus is constantly inviting people to make a choice. In Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Well, if this is such a cool thing, then why isn't this place filled? And why isn't every seat in this auditorium filled? I'll tell you why. 
Because Jeremiah's message is a hard message. And Jesus' message is a hard message. People want to have a way where more and more people that, that enter through the broad gate. They want a message that says, for the gate is broad and the road is broad that leads to life and prosperity. And narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to hell. You have to be somebody like a serial killer or Hitler. But Jesus teaches that faith in him results in life. And that Jesus is the way. To inherit eternal life. Enter through the narrow gate. Choose the life. And think about that for just a moment. When Jesus says that I'm the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says that life comes from him. That he is the self-existent being. He isn't dependent on anyone or anything for life. He's the author and the finisher. Not only of faith but of life. The Babylonians would treat the deserters like the spoils of war. Wearsby points out, quote, since Nebuchadnezzar was doing the work of God in punishing the kingdom of Judah. That's chapter 50, verse 9 and verse 23. And then chapter 51, verse 20. And since God was allied with Babylon in fighting Judah to surrender to Babylon really meant to surrender to the will of God. It meant to confess guilt and submit to the hand of the Lord. Rebellion against the Babylonians was rebellion against the Lord, and that was the way of death. This is why Jeremiah could say, submit and surrender. I'm a proud Jew. I'm not going to submit and surrender. I'm a proud American. I'm not going to submit and surrender. But what if the hand of discipline and what if the hand of chastisement is that hand in order to bring you to a place of humility and dependence? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you get cancer, don't pray and don't fight. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the cancer is God's will in order to get you to submit. Here's what I am saying, though. I am saying that if you find yourself in a place where God is disciplining you. If you find yourself in a place where God is trying to direct you into a life of humility and dependence upon him, then you should pay close attention to what's happening to you. Is your marriage, is your job, is your circumstances, are the difficulties in your life bringing you to a place of humility and surrender and dependence upon the Lord? What are we to do when we are chastened? What are we to do when we are disciplined? The only sane and safe course is submission to God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. I know what some of you think. Not abused is more like it. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. 
Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? I'm going to read the sentence again. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Those last two words and live have an implicit underlying issue. The implicit underlying issue is refusing to submit. Refusing to be subject to the Father of Spirits. Refusing the chastisement and refusing the discipline may result in something far more difficult. It's never a good idea to rebel and disobey God. So you need to be really careful when you say, I don't want to submit to the will of God. By the way, is that a good statement to make or a bad statement to make? I don't want to submit to the will of God. It's not rocket science. Help me out. It's a bad idea. So if you silently or out loud are foolish enough to say, I don't know. I, I, I really I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Was there certain words that you could say to your mom and dad that was almost automatically an invitation to a spanking? Were there certain things that you could say that you could almost be guaranteed to be disciplined? The Bible says that there are sins that lead to death. And the Bible says that there is a sin not unto death in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. And John writes, I don't say that you should pray about that. In verse 10, it says, For I have set my face against this city for adversity, not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Here's part of the point of that passage. Since the city is going to be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, good place to live or a bad place to live. Since it's going to be destroyed by fire, should you grow fond and attached to it or should you distance yourself from it? And by the way, since it looks like the king of Babylon is going to occupy this world and seeing that this world will one day perish with fire, does it make sense for your treasure and your affections and your desires to be rooted here? Or should you seek treasure and should you focus affection in a different place? In different circumstances. And so there's warnings and pleadings to the house of David at the end of the chapter. In verse 11 it says, And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 12. O house of David. By the way, this is the kingly line of David. 
Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. He's addressing all of the offspring, the descendants of David and Solomon. Okay. Here's remember what the Lord did. The Lord made a promise to David and his descendants. If you obey God's word and God's law and execute justice in the land, God's going to keep his promise and maintain David's royal dynasty and lineage. But if they disobeyed, the kings would lose their rights to David's throne. And so once again, God's reminding them of the terms of the covenant, urging them to obey God's word and justice, justice, justice will be the price for continued survival. Do you want to survive? Then do what's right. And and look, look what it says in the text. Execute judgment in the morning. What do you suppose that means? It means the very first thing that you do when you get up tomorrow, execute justice. So when it it's an idiomatic expression, execute judgment in the morning. This is our way of saying, put this At the top of the list of things to do. Do you want to go forward? Put this at the top of the list. (laughs) And so, once again, the Lord is urging them to obey the word. And the person who's plundered out of the hand of the oppressor is the legal theft of the bureaucratic theft by greedy rulers. In other words... Is it possible that governments and people in leadership can create a bureaucratic mechanism where it becomes legally available to steal from people things that don't really belong to you? Can governments enact laws to steal from people things that belong to those people? Yeah. So part of the point that he's making is stop being greedy, stop being covetous, stop using your position of power to abuse your position of power. And so here's the idea. The idea is stop legally stealing from the poor. Get up in the morning and make a fundamental change. Decide that things have got to be different. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our our dwellings? Here's the idea. The people of Judah and Jerusalem believed that Jerusalem was impregnable. And the reason why they believed it is because the city was surrounded by three steep cliffs in antiquity. And these steep valleys have been filled in over the centuries and even the millennia. Hinnom on the south and west, Kidron in the east. But when Jeremiah was writing these words... There were sheer cliffs that surrounded the city and the ancient people really had to only arm themselves and defend themselves from the northern posture. And so Jerusalem was practically impregnable. And so the people were thinking, no one can take us. There's no way anyone can take us. We have the strongest city on the planet Earth, and we have more military might than anyone else. And 
Guess what? We're smarter than everyone else. We have an impregnable fortress. We have a strong military and we're smarter than our enemies. And you know what? They did have an impregnable fortress. And they did have an impressive military. And frankly, they were smarter than their enemies. But what happens when you decide to rebel and disobey God? Are you smarter than God? Do you think you can outsmart God and go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to live a life of wickedness and rebellion and disobedience. And right at the end, I'm going to have a deathbed conversion. Right when the lights are starting to turn out, I will cry out to God and I'll turn from my wickedness and my rebellion and my disobedience and we'll all live happily ever after. Is that a good idea? Yeah, it's a bad idea. Verse 14, but I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings. Those are the words of the Lord. But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest and it shall devour all things around it. By the way, the Babylonians would come in after the 30 month siege. And they will burn the city to the ground. If you go even now, there's an archaeological site all around the city that delineates the burn site. When the Babylonians came over and and took the city, by the way. Have you ever heard of the cedars of Lebanon? The cedars of Lebanon were used to build the palace of Solomon. And they were used to build the palaces of the princes. And the Babylonian armies came and they burned it to the ground. The chapter begins with a cry for help from the king. And it ends with a pronouncement of doom. The best defense... Is always a good offense. Don't offend God. Obey his will. The Bible teaches that God's will is to be honored. The Bible says that the Lord will discipline his children. Discipline takes place for persistent disobedience. You'll remember that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord and the encounter would basically leave Jacob crippled for life. He would forever walk with a limp and the limp was supposed to remind him to never take matters into his own hand. To always honor God. But if you are without discipline which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? Hebrews chapter 12. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit. You know what the writer of Hebrews says? Is it possible that your mom and your dad made a mistake? That they acted selfishly or foolishly or excessively. But God will never act foolishly. God will never act wrongly. God will never act excessively. The writer of Hebrews says, but he does it for our benefit. So that we can share his holiness 
No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is God's discipline supposed to affect? Holiness. Peace. Righteousness. Is that what God's discipline is doing in your life? Discipline will verify our salvation. And sometimes we will be disciplined for conforming to this world. Or we'll be disciplined for creating division. But the Bible says, think biblically. Receive training in godliness. Begin to embark and embrace goals that will cause you to think about and to act in a way that honors and pleases God. Paul told Timothy to confront those who taught doctrines of demons. He cautioned him not to be caught up in silly myths and to avoid materialistic motives and pursue righteousness through faith. So what do you suppose that means? Pursue. The word pursue means to run hard after. Are you aggressively trying to honor God? Are you aggressively trying to love him and obey him? You know, Jeremiah is giving these sermons for a reason. A warning to those who can escape and a pronouncement to those who won't. And each and every one of us have this incredible opportunity. We can run into the arms of our Father and we can embrace Jesus Christ. And guess what? All of the stuff that constitutes judgment is forever satisfied at the cross of Calvary. So, we're halfway through Jeremiah's ninth sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we know that Jeremiah's message to Zedekiah, there's no escape. That for some, Lord, they've made choices and they've embraced decisions. And they're finding themselves in the midst of consequences where it doesn't look like there is any escape. But Lord, again, we thank you that you've dealt with us not according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity. That for most of us, there is an escape. We can run from the city that's destined to burn. And we can run into an eternal city whose builder and maker is God. Lord, we thank you that even though this world has been assigned a place of destruction. That Lord we have been assigned a place. Of eternal life. A holy habitation. So that we could be with you forever. And so again father. We pray. That we would flee the city that's going to burn. And that we would walk towards the city that's destined to last forever. Even the holy city of the new Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen.